0: Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion podcast series, A History of SCDMH,
1: Diversity and Representation Throughout the Years,
0: Episode 4. Final April 2023 Diversity Month Celebration, A History of DMH, diversity and representation throughout the years. Today, we will be focusing on the recognition, excuse me, the recognition of DEI in both treatment of patients and the workforce and the role of Dr. Otis Corbett and the role he played in that. During the last podcast, Mark Binkley, DMH's executive project manager and unofficial historian, who has graced us with his knowledge for three weeks now described how community mental health services were expanded during the 1970s and the 1980s. And how this reflected the change in South Carolina demographics and the impact of the 1999-1999 landmark Olmstead decision on the expansion. With all of this, it's somewhat ironic in that DMH maintained segregated state hospitals until 1965, but DMH became a leader among state agencies and a national leader among state mental health agencies in educating staff about cultural competency the original term for encouraging staff to become familiar with the backgrounds of patients who grew up in a culture different from themselves so mark tell us how did the agency come to be considered a leader in the area of cultural competency
1: well it it actually uh, started not with the leadership of the agency but with staff uh, primarily uh, social work staff and primarily social work staff from what was Uh, the segregated uh, hospital, uh, which for years was known as State Park, uh, briefly known as Palmetto State Hospital. And then in 1965, with integration, with long-last integration of that hospital, it became renamed Crafts-Farrow State Hospital. Uh, But in addition to up until 1965, all of the patients at Crafts-Farrow being African-American, uh, many of the staff, if not most of the staff at Crest were also African-American, including the professional staff. And it was uh, r- really um, the uh, social work staff that sort of spawned uh, an interest in uh, identifying as part of uh, good treatment for patients uh, with backgrounds diverse from their own that that in order to provide good treatment, it was a a matter of quality of treatment that a a professional uh, uh, mental health practitioner needed to be uh, familiar with the patient's background and and familiar with their culture in order to effectively treat them. And back in the uh, uh, 60s and 70s, um, that was really not a uh, uh, something that was mainstream at that point. Um, that really is, is mainstream now. Nobody questions uh, that wisdom now, uh, but really that was ahead of its time. And it sort of started with um, a, an emphasis uh, by DMH leadership to uh, beef up the credentials of the staff at Crass Farrow. And it started with a, a, an ac- actually around 1960, uh, a white New Englander, uh, Dr. Clyde Goodrum, who himself was a social worker, uh, was recruited to come down to Crafts Faro uh, and be the coordinator of training for uh, the professional staff at, at Crafts Farrow. And he began recruiting and training uh, uh, African-American social workers from Benedict College, from uh, Allen University, and uh, sort of beefing up uh, the staff, the professional staff at, at Crass Farrow. As I've talked about in the past, really up until the 60s, uh, with the advent of uh, psychiatric medications and, and more emphasis on Uh, getting patients well enough to transition into the community, a lot of the care that went on in state hospitals nationally and in South Carolina was really custodial care, um, really focused on just uh, day-to-day activities and, and sort of going through the motions of keeping people active rather than active treatment. So with the 60s and the recognition that that active treatment was possible and people could recover well enough to move to the community, um, both at State Hospital and at Crafts Farrow. There was an increased emphasis on increasing the professional staff. And so one of the uh, longtime staff members at Crafts Farrow was a guy named uh, Otis Corbett, who at that point in the uh, 60s and 70s was not yet a, a doctor. Uh, but he he went back to school. He actually left, the you know, uh, DMH for a while, and went back to school and became uh, Dr. Otis Corbett uh, before he returned to the to the uh, department. When I came to the department in 1985, he was in central office, and his role in central office was as part of a uh, component in central office that was focused on quality of care for uh, DMH patients. but. Uh, when these events occurred back in the um, uh, late '60s and early '70s, he was he was still working at Crafts Um and he's credited uh, with uh, uh, getting his colleagues excited about the idea of improving training for. Uh, mental health staff around around cross-cultural issues. And so um, he and others at Crass Farrow, but also with the support of some community uh, mental health social workers, notably Joe James, uh, who was at Greenville Mental Health Center, and Sharon Spivey, who was also at Greenville Mental Health Center, and even Dr. William Powell, a psychiatrist who was at Spartanburg Mental Health Center. Uh, they all began uh, focusing on um, the importance of understanding culture uh, in the treatment of patients. And this, I don't. It's it's not clear whether uh, that extended to uh, appreciating the culture of your the di- the diverse the diversity of your colleagues, but it certainly was at least initially focused on improving care for for patients by becoming familiar uh, with with culture and Dr. Corbett and his colleagues organized a conference, which continues today, but the first conference uh, was held in May of 1979. And it was actually at that point called a conference on minorities and mental health. That was the original name of the conference, but that's what became uh, the the annual uh, cross-cultural uh, conference that we that we carry on today that the, a, a nonprofit organization was formed in 1983 called the Action Council for Cross-Cultural Mental Health and Human Services, and that is the organization that actually puts on the conference, but uh, a vast number of the attendees and the leadership of the Action Council uh, come from, uh, many of them come from uh, the Department of Mental Health, and for for years, uh, Dr. Corbett was the president of the uh, of the Action Council. I believe the current president today is a former DMH employee named James Starnes, also a, a social worker. So it, it, uh, when I came in 1985, I came the same month as a new commissioner came, Dr. Joseph Bevilacqua. And Dr. Bevilacqua, ironically, is a doctor of social work or was a doctor of social work. And he was supportive of uh, of, uh, Dr. Corbett and others and and was a big supporter of the uh, cross-cultural conference and encouraged uh, staff to go there. And so really um, in my mind, um, once again, uh, DMH was a national leader um, thanks to Dr. Corbett and his colleagues uh, who uh, for the most part were alumni, or worked at Crossborough State Hospital.
0: Awesome, awesome. I actually um, I have attended the cross-cultural um, conference for several years now. and was honored to play a part in planning the, a small part, very small part, in planning the, the one for this year. And um, it is amazing. If you haven't attended recently, they do a wonderful job in um, planning that conference. And they have speakers from all over. People come from all over and it is amazing. So Dr. Corbett's work continues to this day. I think they celebrated 45 years this year, Mark. So um, his work, um, his legacy continues. Um, he was not alone as you've mentioned, I, um, as I learned more about his work, I've heard of other pivotal figures such as Dolores Macy. Um, can you tell us more or anything about Miss um, Macy's work or her contributions to cultural competency and the growth of it at DMH?
1: Just again, that she was, um, you know, one of those figures, a DMH employee, um, I believe also a, a social worker, um, who um, was also focused on making sure that the quality of care delivered to all patients, not just white patients, um, was was high quality. And uh, uh, she she when I came here, she was already working in central office. I'm not quite as familiar with her background as, as that of Dr. Corbett, but, but again, what struck me when I was getting ready to talk about this today was, <laughs> how consistently it it was that it was social workers in the in sort of the lead of of the efforts, uh, I guess based on their training and based on uh, just their experience uh, they appreciated perhaps more than uh, uh, psychiatrists would uh, perhaps more than nurses would even uh, the importance of understanding a patient's background and 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 their upbringing and and sort of the, uh community from which they uh came in in, in informing in in how you understand what their needs were and and what kind of treatment uh would be effective in in helping them uh return to that community so um as I said Dr Bevilacqua was a big supporter uh Mary Green another social worker uh, was a was very uh, instrumental in uh, the Action Council and in furthering that. Um, and other names, you know, John Morris, who uh, was a social worker and worked at the department for many years. And actually, uh, upon Dr. Bevilacqua's uh, retirement from DMH, he became the interim state director and continued the support uh, for the, uh, cross-cultural training uh, and of staff and and for the cross-cultural conference uh so so there's just a, a long list of uh current and former uh, DMH employees who who really have been uh, in the vanguard I would say of uh, supporting uh focusing on uh, culture and and diversity as key to providing, Uh, effective treatment to patients.
0: As I um, continue to explore this topic with you, Mark, I learn more and more, um, and I hear many names. You and I, as you were talking, Mary Green, I had the pleasure of meeting Mary Green, um, another key and pivotal figure. I've learned so much from her in my discussions with her, Um, lovely woman, Um, I feel like I stand on the shoulders of so many wonderful people that have paved the way for what I do today. Um, How did an understanding of the importance of cultural competence change mental health treatments? We talked in the very beginning, like in week one, we talked about how changes in medicine um, change treatments and changes in um, Research. Um, how did changes the the discovery of how cultural competence could change things, mental health treatments? How did that help?
1: Well, I think it's still going on today. Mm-hmm. I, I think um, I agree. It it it. Um, one of the other uh, former DMH employees, who's who's still a, a practicing psychiatrist, I believe, uh, somewhere possibly MUSC. Uh, Dr. Um, Stephen just blanked on his last name. Um, he he conducted research. I remember our former state director Dr. Rogers has conducted research on um, you know the, the diagnosis, you know my own impression as a layperson is it it often uh, is a uh, sort of a trial and error process when you have a patient that's exhibiting, Uh, symptoms of a mental illness to try to determine what the proper diagnosis and proper treatment is. And and so I think um, some of the research that's come out of the really sort of spawned by the cross-cultural movement has focused on are there uh, are, for example, African-American men overdiagnosed with psychotic disorders when something else may be at, at play, uh, like trauma. Um, and, and really what they need is a whole different. They don't need antipsychotic medication. They need uh, medication or therapy d- designed to treat PTSD. So So those kind of things, I think, have, uh, have really uh, become more uh, front and center for clinicians. Um, whereas in the past, um, I think people would have just you know, said, well, that's the diagnosis. This is the treatment. Let's move on and not question whether the uh, culture of the treating psychiatrist or the treating uh, mental health professional may have colored their understanding of the behaviors that the patient was exhibiting. So I, I do think that it's uh, it it's got to have improved um, patient care when uh, so many so much of the training that mental health professionals receive now all the way back to medical school and really it's I think it started in mental health, but I think it's uh, uh, the, the issue of culture and and the importance of understanding uh, a patient's background in the community from which they came you know has spread to other, uh, medical disciplines, not to mention, you know, other uh, human service entities like uh, Department of Social Services and um, and, and other other uh, health and human service type uh, disciplines. So, um, one other person I just wanted to mention that was a former DMH employee, although he ultimately uh, pursued a career in education is um is our own uh, current current uh, mental health commissioner carl jones uh who is also uh, is still a member of the action council does still always attend the cross-cultural conference uh, but was uh, back in the day also an employee of the department of mental health and a, and a colleague of, of dr corbett so like i said a current and former uh, dmh Alumni uh, still are very active in in uh, uh, promoting uh, cross cultural education.
0: Yes, so glad you mentioned Mr. Jones. That, uh, yes, we would be remiss without um, at least bringing attention to Mr. Jones.
1: Yeah, and for some of your uh, listeners who who may remember her, I, I just it, it just flashed on me again another former. <laughs> Uh, of course, a DMZ, DMH social wow. worker who was very, very active and in, in instrumental in uh, promoting cross-cultural training and, and always at the conferences was Shirley Furtick. Um, I think she's, uh, last I heard, she was at the VA now, but um, you know, again, um, a real dynamic uh, individual who uh, was always at the forefront uh, of, of social work education.
0: I've heard the name. I haven't had the pleasure of meeting her yet, but I'm sure if we, if I keep going, um, <laughs> our paths will cross. So cultural competence continues to evolve. I think this is my, my takeaway here. We now understand that as the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion's motto states, diversity does matter. Mental illness does not discriminate. We come in different packages. What is your hope for the future, Mark?
1: I just hope that, you know, and, and, and unfortunately, I, you know, I was one of those people that, you know, thought that, you know, the arc of justice was, you know, was, was just sort of always on an upward <laughs> trajectory. Um, and, and, and one of those people that's been disappointed uh, recently by the uh, culture wars, uh, as they're being called, that, that are ongoing in the United States, uh, where there seems to be a lot of resistance uh, that's uh, arisen. Um, and and it, it, ironically, something that was uh, initially uh, misunderstood, but then became mainstream acceptance, uh, cultural competency, is now, you know, once again, pretend, potentially becoming kind of a flashpoint for the culture wars. And so, you know, my hope is that uh, we all we all recognize that some things are just uh, true. It's it's just true that a individual's background, culture, upbringing matters um, when it comes to illness and and particularly mental illness in understanding what what treatment they need, and that we not uh, go backwards um, certainly in in continuing to educate our staff and uh, each other about the importance of diversity and the uh, critical need to understand our fellow employees but also our patients uh, backgrounds and ap- appreciate the differences that we all have uh, and where we uh, where we're alike and I, I think we're more alike, everybody had said this, it's not unique to me. We're certainly more alike than we are different, but those differences often can manifest in ways uh, that uh, are, are really rewarding to, uh, to come to understand rather than threatening.
0: Well said, well said. Well, my hope is very simple. It is my hope that DMH will continue to understand and explore how cultural competence, cultural humility, and the umbrella of DEI all contribute to the successful treatment of our patients and residents, and also in the relationships we have with each other as we work to fulfill the DMH mission. It's that simple. Um, Mark, these four weeks have been a pleasure as we've worked to recall the history, to explore cultural competence and DEI, E- during this April diversity month. This was a unique way to celebrate diversity month. And I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have you Mark and the listeners. Um, it has been inspirational to me. It has been um, rewarding and I've learned a lot. So I appreciate all of your knowledge. I appreciate um the boost it has given me to keep doing what i'm doing. Thank you so much Mark. Um again, i couldn't have done it without you. Um can't say see you next week. So, see you in the hallways.
1: All right. Thanks Janet. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. Bye bye.
0: This Includes episode 4 of A
1: History of SCDMH Diversity and Representation Throughout the Years. Presented by the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the South Carolina Department of Mental Health. Thank you for listening. Music excerpt by Ketsa Brightness under Creative
0: Commons Licensing adjusted